Now we, uh, as you remember, are currently in a series, and we're in the middle of that series called Love Lessons. And we're coming back to God's Word, discovering what does a lifestyle of love really look like when we live it out authentically as believers in Jesus Christ. And as we started the series, as we looked at sort of the general idea of love, those messages weren't that challenging. But now that we've gotten to where the rubber meets the road, the actual practice of love, that love is patient, love is kind, it's become a little bit more challenging for us. A couple of weeks ago when I preached on love is patient, I had somebody come and say, Pastor, you have moved from the realm of preaching to the realm of meddling. And sometimes we feel like that with God, don't we? Like, God, you're just meddling in my life and you're just messing stuff up. Leave me alone. But can I tell you, God's not meddling in your life. God is molding your life. He's shaping you to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so today, if you've thought in the past that we've entered the realm of meddling, you're definitely going to feel like that today. Because today we come back to 1 Corinthians 13 where it says that love keeps no record of wrongs, that love forgives. That word keeps no record of wrongs means that it doesn't reckon on the bad. Now that's an accounting term. An accountant's, their job or responsibility is to record every single transaction. And so they have a ledger, and every time there's an interaction, they record it. They write it down. They keep a record. So that later, if there's ever a question, they can come back to the ledger, and they can bring that up and say, no, here's what you owe. Now, what is helpful in the realm of accounting is harmful in the realm of relationships. And God knows that. And so that's why he instructs us to forgive. But you see, many of us in our relationships, we want to be accountants. We want to run around with our ledger, our piece of paper, recording all of the wrongs, all of the faults and the failures of the people that have hurt us, especially on a heart level whether that's an actual physical ledger or just the ledger in our mind. And if you think about that ledger in your mind, how much of your mental capacity today are you giving to this accounting and trying to make people pay? It's exhausting. Many of us, were worn out. We're tired all the time. Why? Because we're giving huge amounts of energy to keeping track of everything, recording it all. Jesus wants to free us from that. Now, why do we do that? Because we're living a fear-based life, not a faith-based life. A fear that that they're going to get free. If I forgive them, they're going to go free and and they're not going to have to pay. You see, the reality is forgiveness doesn't free them, it frees us. It frees us from the prisons of anger and bitterness and resentment. The other thing that we forget when we live a fear-based life and not a faith-based life is there is an ultimate judge, Jesus. There's going to be justice. 
And what frees me up is I don't have to run around trying to be the judge in everybody else's life. It's Jesus' job. Now today is Father's Day weekend. And some of you, as you celebrate Father's Day, you have father wounds, hurts in your life because of the failures of a father. And today, my prayer for you is that you will find the forgiveness for that father. Because for some of you, it's ruining your ability to be the father that God's called you to be. Now, I want to take a moment and I want to celebrate dads because we live in a culture that is a very difficult culture for dads today, a culture that demeans dads. And so if you're a dad, I just want to ask you, would you stand up, whether that's biologically or whether that's adoption, would you, if you're a dad, just stand up with me for a moment? Let's give these guys a hand. Now, I want you to stay standing for a moment because I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for all of the men in our congregation today. And as we recognize these dads that are standing, there are men that that haven't had the opportunity to be dads. And so I want to include them. I want to pray for them as well. And Father, we live in a challenging world that is constantly telling us that we're worthless as men. But we know what your word says that we play a critical part in our communities, in our churches, in our families. And so, God, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen these men. I pray for the father wounds that we have, the other hurts in our life, that, that, Father, today we would let go and we would forgive. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we're called to forgive. How do we do that? Well, the beautiful thing about the Word of God is it doesn't just instruct us to forgive, it also instructs us how to forgive. And I'd like you to turn with me to a very familiar passage, Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first three verses and then jump down to verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, Set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ. Now look at verse 12. Since God chose you to be holy people that he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, making allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. You see that word being offended? We live in a culture that is easily offended today. But what are we to do with our offense? We are to forgive, right? It's very clear here that, that Paul instructs you and I that this is not a suggestion, this is a clear command from God. Now, what you need to understand, at this point in the book of Colossians, there is this shift from our belief to our behavior. Why? Because your belief impacts your behavior. What you really believe in your core heart, you will live out in your conduct. And it makes sense that there's this shift because what good is it if I can declare the truth and I can defend the truth, but I can't demonstrate the truth in the way that I live? What kind of a Christian am I 
if it's all just principles without any real practice. You see, that was the reality of the pagan culture in which Paul lived, that their worship didn't affect their walk. But for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to have the very conduct that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. And so when we we forgive people, we're reflecting Jesus. But when we choose not to forgive, we're reflecting the culture instead of Jesus Christ. So how do we forgive? Well, the first thing I want you to see here is Paul doesn't give us a formula. We want formulas, don't we? Give me the ABCs of forgiveness and I'll just go through the motions. It will become a ritual. But it's not about a ritual. It's not about rules. It is about a relationship with Jesus. And do you notice here how much he talks about this relationship with Jesus and this focusing on Jesus? And so here's the thing. Number one, when it comes to forgiveness, you and I need to see the power that we have to forgive. And the first thing that Paul points to is something most of us have never thought about and connected to this ability to forgive, and it's this, your position as a child of the king. If you're saved today, your position, and he says this about your position, you have been chosen, you're holy, and you're loved. When was the last time you thought about the fact that you've been chosen by God? Your Special and significant because God says you are. Your worth is not based on what the world tells you, but what the word of God tells you. Are you basing your worth today on the word? Or is your worth based on your house, your career, your car, everything else that society says you're successful, you've arrived if you have this stuff? But see, the word of God says our success is that we're children of God. That means that you don't have to strive to arrive. Isn't that freeing as a Christian? See, we read this passage and we go, if I was a better Christian, God would accept me more. If I was a better Christian, if I could just live up, if I could be like so-and-so, if I could pray more, he would love me more. That's not true. God already loves you. And it's, it's not about your performance. It is about your position as a child of God. And then he says that we're holy. That means that you and I are set apart from sin so that we're no longer slaves of sin, but we can become servants of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer clinging to the culture, but clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what a holy life is, a separate life. And so when you and I forgive, we're clinging to the cross. But when you and I refuse to forgive people, we're clinging to the culture. And then he says that you're loved. When was the last time you stopped to really soak that in? You see, I think sometimes when it comes to this idea that we've been loved by God, we sort of know that in the recesses of our mind, but we're not living out that love. We're not living like we are truly loved by God. When I was a kid, oftentimes we would play games where there were two teams and they would choose two captains and then the captains would choose who was going to be on their team. And every once in a while, more often than I'd like to admit, I was the last one chosen. Now, that doesn't make you feel chosen. 
That means you're on this team by default. You were the last one. See, the, the guy just right ahead of you, when it was just two of you, he was actually chosen. But you're like, not chosen. You're by default. And then they would say this, well, if we got to take Armstrong, we need so-and-so and so-and-so because he's so pathetic, we got to make up for it. That, that's when you know that you are not chosen, right? And I think some of us, we look at that like, I'm on God's team by default. No, it's by design. You were chosen by God. You were loved by God. You were holy. You were set apart. The problem is most of us today, we're trying to live up to a position instead of living out our position. Now, why is position here so critical to forgiveness? Because your position, secondly, will determine your perspective. Do you notice what he says here? Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the reality of heaven. You've been raised to a new life. That is your reality. That is a completely different perspective. But how many of us today are focused when it comes to our perspective of life on the pain of the past and the present problems? Most of us, we have more of a perspective from Fox News than we do from the good news. Because we spend more time listening to world news than the news that comes from the Word. And so what happens is our perspective is based on the problems and not on the plan. Is your perspective, when you get up every single day, based on God's plan? Because here's what he says, in the end, even though it doesn't look like it's going to happen, we win. Is that your perspective today? You see, most of us, we are focused on the wounds that have been done to us instead of the one who longs for us. Now, your perspective is absolutely critical. But your position doesn't just impact your perspective. It also impacts your purpose and what you choose to pursue. Set your sights. What's your target? What are you shooting for? What are you aiming at today? You see, we're all looking. Every single person on this planet is searching for something. You see it, you watch people, they're, they're trying to find something and it's this, this satisfaction that they're looking for. But what is it that you're seeking? Because what you seek will determine two critical things in your life. Number one, your success in this life and number two, your satisfaction. And many of us, we're living miserable lives. We have miserable marriages. Why? Because we're not really pursuing what God wants us to pursue. And what is it? Set your sights on the realities of heaven. Now, that's not the place. That's the person. That's Jesus Christ. That means that you and I, as we live this life, need to have a single purpose, and that is to live for the Lord and a single pursuit, and that is to chase after Jesus. The problem is we get sidetracked by the junk Now, if I were to go and poll most Christians today and say, what is it that you're really pursuing? I think the answer would be the problems and the pain. And most of us would say, no, 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 I'm I'm pursuing Jesus. But that's not what you're chasing after. When I started riding a motorcycle, one of the things that you learn very quickly is on the highway of life, you're going to run into junk. There's stuff out there on the road that shouldn't be on the road. Maybe it's a couple of two-by-fours that fell off the contractor's truck. 
Maybe it's a brick that's there. Maybe even though you paid your road tax and it was a lot, there's a huge pothole in the road that shouldn't be there. But here's what I discovered riding a bike. If you focus on that problem that's on the road, do you know what you do to your bike? You ride it right to the problem. You have to learn to refocus and stop staring. And I'm telling you, when you see a huge pothole, when you see a two-by-four, man, it's like when you see the problems of life, you know this. You want to focus on that. But you know what happens? You steer yourself right into that pothole of pain. And many of us, over and over and over, we're running into the same junk. We're, we're trashing our lives because we're trying to focus on the problems. But you see, what Paul is saying here is setting your sights means that you look beyond the problems to the person of Jesus Christ. It's not that you deny the problems. It's not that you minimize the problems. It's that you choose not to make them the most important thing in your life. Because it's here that we also see that our position impacts how we process. This has to do with our heads The reality of the resurrection puts the resurrection in our hearts, but it has to be transferred into our heads. It's something that we have to focus on and think about. And it says here very clearly, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. There's two kinds of thinking, earthly thinking and eternal thinking. Eternal thinking is promise-focused and earthly thinking is problem-focused. And so when we have people that hurt us on a heart level, our tendency is to start processing and thinking about the pain instead of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the reality? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is Jesus sitting down? Because he's done. At the end of the day, when you get done with everything, you sit down. He has already, what, conquered sin and death. The only time in Scripture that we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father is when Stephen is being stoned to death and he sees heaven and he sees the, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Why is Jesus standing up there? I think he's applauding Stephen and I think he's getting ready to welcome him home. Well done, good and faithful servant. But Jesus is seated. Why? Because he's in control. And in this crazy, out-of-control world where we think, man, I've got to be the one that makes everything happen. I've got to be the one that that makes sure there's fairness and justice and, and I become the judge. Focusing on Jesus frees us from that. But how many of us today, as we process, are spending huge amounts of emotional energy and time thinking about our past pain and the people that have hurt us? And we even have these conversations with them in our head. Like if they were there right now, I'm going to say this and this. And we can spend hours thinking about this. And it's not just that it emotionally drains us and we're worn out. But we're wasting one of the greatest treasures that God gave us, time. The world's telling us our greatest treasure is money. It's not. You can always make more money. You can't make more time. The greatest gift that you can give to other people is your time. But how much of it are we wasting on our wounds? And we're, we're, we're trashing time today. 
Because we want to constantly have these conversations because we don't really want to forgive. And so here's what happens in our marriages. Most couples never learn to resolve anything in their marriage because they don't learn the key is forgiveness. Did you notice what it says here? Make allowances for other people's faults. Let them be human. What's going to happen in my marriage if I don't allow Angel to be human? If I'm going to set a standard of perfection that she can't make any mistakes, well, I've already set things up for failure, right? And we go into marriage thinking, man, this person loves me and I love them and it's going to be easy and perfect and it's not going to be any work, right? Well, if that's true, why are we called to forgive? God knows that we're going to hurt each other at times. And sometimes it's not intentional, but it still hurts, right? But here's what we do. We have an issue in our marriage. And rather than actually process through the issue as two adults and resolving that issue, here's what we do in very short order. Because we haven't forgiven the problems of the past, we open up that cupboard of all of the past pains, faults, and failures of our spouse. And we start dragging those in. Yeah, well, well, you did this and you did this. And pretty soon we muddy the water and we're not even talking about the current issue. And then we walk, walk away hurt, both feeling like, like we're the ones that are wrong and mad about it. And then we go have these conversations with our spouse in our mind, right? Instead of actually having real conversations with them. And what happens to that issue that we had? Well, it just becomes one more problem that gets put into the pantry of the past, ready to bring out the next time that we have a fight. You see, the power to forgive rests in your position in Christ. And so I want to ask you, you living out that position in Christ, is it impacting your perspective? Is it impacting your purpose and what you pursue? Is it impacting your processing and what you think about? Because the second thing that we see here is that you and I have the provision to forgive, the provision for this new life. And what is that provision? Well, first, we have been forgiven by God. Now, sometimes we have this mentality that God somehow changed between the Old and the New Testament. But I want to read to you two verses, first out of the Old Testament, and then secondly, the New Testament, about the forgiveness of God. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Do you hear that? Remembers your sin no more. Old Testament. New Testament, Hebrews 8, 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. It's the same God, right? I'm not going to remember that. I'm going to make a conscious choice not to go there. That's what it really means to forgive. And, and some of you, your greatest struggle is not necessarily forgiving other people. It's forgiving yourself. But what does it say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness, not some. And so if God has forgiven you, you've got to walk in your forgiveness and not in your past failure. And there's a lot of Christians today, they're serving to try to somehow make up for failures. God's forgiven you. Walk in that forgiveness because if you don't, you're going to struggle then with forgiving other people. Now, you and I need to understand the seriousness of forgiveness. God is so serious about this that Jesus told us the heart of the Father in the Lord's Prayer. And that is that if you and I refuse to forgive others, our Father in heaven will not forgive us. But if we forgive other people, our Father in heaven will forgive us. 
Why is there a clause there? Because God is not going to allow you to be a grace grabber and not a grace giver. There has to be a flow of grace in your life or there's a blockage. And and this is the hard part that, that many of us, we don't get up and think about I have a father who, who will forgive me, but if, if I harbor all this stuff against other people, he's, he's going to stop. Now, that's a scary thought. Let me ask you, are you comfortable praying this prayer? Lord, forgive me today to the degree that I forgive the people that hurt me. That's a biblical prayer. Every day as I prayer walk, at some point in my prayer walk, I pray that prayer. It changes my heart. It reminds me. Giles, if you're going to be hard-hearted towards people and you're not willing to forgive them, then guess what? God's not going to forgive you. And that has nothing to do with our salvation, but it does have to do with our walk, and then there's a break in our relationship, right? And for some of us, the reason that we feel distant from God is because we refuse to forgive people and we're harboring anger and bitterness and resentment in our heart. Now, Peter, and I love Peter, he's always coming asking questions, great questions. And he comes to Jesus and he asks one of the most important questions ever How many times should I forgive people? Now, why does he say, How many times should I forgive people? Because there's something about us that we want to put limits on love, right? I'm willing to love you to this point and no more. Imagine if Jesus had put limits on love. How many of us would be saved? None of us. And so Peter says, how many times? And then Peter throws out a number seven. And what you need to understand is it's a very generous number. And here's why. Because the religious leaders of the day had told the people, you only have to forgive people three times. Now they get that from the book of Amos, where in Amos, God, when it came to the enemies of Israel, forgave them three times, and then the fourth time he punished them. And so they concluded... Actually, what they did is they went and looked for the least amount of times, and then they settled on that. That's human nature, right? And so Peter doubles the Old Testament standard. That's really generous. I'm sure Peter expected a pat on the back. I don't think he expected what Jesus would say. Jesus didn't say, no, Peter, you've doubled it, now double it again, or triple it, or quadruple it. He said, I want you to take what you've doubled, and I want you to times it by 70. 70 times 7. God, that's like 490 times. I can't keep track of that. Now, here's something you need to understand. Not only are we not to keep track of the people who have wronged us, but we're not to keep track of how many times we've forgiven them. Isn't it amazing how much we want to keep track? We want to go back to being that accountant, whether it's holding on to the wrongs or or, or the forgiveness side of the coin. Now, what you need to understand is Jesus then went on and he taught and he said this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who, there was a man that owed him millions of dollars. And he couldn't pay and the king was going to throw him into prison and sell his family into slavery. And the man begged for forgiveness and he forgave him the complete debt. And then the man went out and found a servant that owed him a couple of bucks, started to strangle him, threw him in prison, and demanded that he paid. What's the problem? I've experienced the grace and mercy of God, but I'm not willing to pass it on. Now, when the king heard about that, he grabbed the man and put him in prison, and he tortured him until he would pay. That sounds harsh. 
But how many of us today are living in the prisons of torture because we will not forgive people? We refuse. And so we're, we're basically torturing ourselves today. On a different occasion, and I love this, Jesus said in Luke 17, 3 through 4, So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. And here's what the apostles said. Lord, increase our faith. I mean, what else are you going to say to that? I can't do that. You're asking me to do the impossible. I need more faith. Here's what we're learning. You and I living out a lifestyle of love is impossible apart from faith. It is impossible apart from the power of God. Now, the second provision that you and I have here is that because we're forgiven, we are free to forgive. You and I are free to forgive the people around us. We don't have to hold on to all of that junk. We don't have to be those accountants that keep track of everything and try to be the people that bring fairness into the world. Now, Dave, I want you to help me with an illustration, if you'd stand up for a moment. You ready? Maybe. Okay. All right. Now, there's two questions, and this is a little unfair. You had no idea what was coming, but there's two questions. Number one, why'd you catch the ball? Number two, why are you holding on to the ball? Now, I'll take it back. Thank you. You can sit down. Let's give him a hand. I want you for a moment to visualize this as that wound. Maybe a word, maybe something somebody did to you. You ever been there when people throw things at you and you catch it? Now, you have two options sometimes. One is you can dodge, duck. But what's our human nature when someone throws something at us? We tend to catch it, right? That's your second choice. And here's what you need to understand. Sometimes you don't have a choice. You ever caught it? You went to work, someone was having a bad day, and they yell, and you're the one that catches their anger? Maybe it happens in your marriage. Maybe it happened to you growing up as a kid. Dad was having a bad day. Mom was having a bad day. And you just caught it. You didn't ask for it. But someone threw something at you, and you caught it. Now, here becomes the question, what are you going to do with it? You have three options with this wound this hurt. One is you can hold it. The other is, yeah, give it right back, right? We can throw it back at people. And something you need to understand is hurt people, hurt people. Because Dave had no idea what we were doing. He was like, well, do I, at one point wanted to throw it to me, right? And when people hurt you, your tendency is to either hold on to the hurt and nurture that hurt or to hurl that hurt back at people. But see, the third option is you and I can take our pain, we can take our wounds and the hurts of our hearts, and we can put them in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. I have been forgiven, and therefore I am free to forgive. And you see, what I'm doing right now is I'm letting go of that. And now my hands are free, free to love people. But as long as I'm holding on to all these hurts, I'm bound up, right? Bound up by bitterness, resentment, anger. Now, a couple things that I want to say about forgiveness is forgiveness is not easy. 
Have you ever stopped to consider what was the hardest thing that Jesus ever did? He did a lot of hard things. Stepping out of eternity into time. I, I, we don't really know how hard that is because we're creatures of time. We're bound by time. But Jesus wasn't. He, he made himself subject to time. Going from being the king of creation to being this vulnerable baby. Do you know how hard that would be? But do you realize that the hardest thing that Jesus did was what? Dying on the cross. The hardest thing that Jesus did in all of his mission here on earth was forgiveness. And I want you to understand that maybe and most possibly that the hardest thing that you're going to do is to forgive people. The other thing I want you to understand is we use this phrase all the time, forgive and forget. Forgiveness is not forgetfulness. You you are going to remember things. But do you remember what it says here? God chooses to remember no more. It says that he casts our sin into the deepest sea. Corey Tim Boom says this. It's true, the Bible says that God casts our sin into the deepest sea. And it doesn't say this, but I believe this, that he puts up a sign, no fishing. (laughs) But how many of us today, we do that, we go fishing back there. We make a conscious choice not to remember. But here's the thing, you're going to, in your life, as you've had wounds in your life, you're going to have people that bump up against those things, that remind you of offenses and hurts in your past. And you're going to have a tendency to feel like, well, I haven't forgiven if I haven't forgotten. It's that we choose to remember no more. Another thing that I want you to understand here is that forgiveness does not necessarily remove the consequences. If somebody killed one of my family members through drinking and driving, I could forgive them, but that doesn't take away the consequence of that. And the last thing that I want you to understand here is forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. Romans twelve eighteen says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. But there are times where being reconciled to that person, that, that it's not a situation that is healthy. It takes one person to repent, one person to forgive, but it takes two people to reconcile. You see, it's here that you and I come lastly to the power of forgiveness and we come full circle because we've seen the power to forgive and now we see the power of forgiveness. And I want you to watch this video with me. It's a story of Corey Ten Boom and how she ended up in a German concentration camp and how she chose forgiveness over hate. And she has a Dutch accent, so for some of you it might be a little hard to understand, but I just want you to just listen to her heart. On May 10th, 1940, Nazi Germany forces invaded the Netherlands, overtaking the country in five days. On bombing raids, the German Luftwaffe dropped over 97 tons of explosives on the city of Rotterdam, forcing the Dutch to surrender. During the subsequent Nazi occupation, over 100,000 Dutch Jews would be rounded up and taken to concentration camps. Few would survive. In the face of these horrors, and at the threat of losing their own liberty, an elderly father and his two daughters risk everything to save the lives of these persecuted people. You all have heard of that terrible time that we have had in Holland, and then when the Germans came 
under the leader Adolf Hitler and he intended to kill all the Jewish people. We started to save as many as we could. I, I had never planned it, but God had planned it. After some time I had a gang of 80 people, 30 teenager boys, 20 teenager girls, 20 men and 10 women. And once we heard that in a Jewish orphanage in Amsterdam, all the babies had to be killed because they were Jewish babies. When we heard that, our boy said, we will save them and we will steal them. And they went to that orphanage and they stole all the hundred babies. You will say, how is it possible? I will tell you a secret. You know, sometimes there came to us good uh, Germans and who were uh, soldiers who were in the army and they said we don't like to work any longer for Adolf Hitler we will not kill the Jewish people can you help us? and I always said sure I will help you just come in and we gave them of course a civil clothing and we took the uniforms I have not to go into details, but you understand how uh, my boys stole the hundred babies. <laughs> Hallelujah. One of my bravest boys was Pete Hartog. And Pete said that evening, I believe we do the most important work that exists. Just saving lives from the morning till the evening. I don't long to go back to, to the college. This is life. <laughs> I said, Pete, I am so happy when I think of the babies that we have saved. But Pete, there is a work that is more important even than saving lives. And that is saving souls and tell the people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Pete smiled. And Pete said, I'm a Christian boy. I go to church, I read my Bible and I pray. But telling people the gospel, telling them about Jesus, that is good business for my pastor. I said, Pete, every Christian is called to be the light of the world. And every Christian must be ready to tell the way of salvation to anyone who needs it. And in your time, in your life, Pete, there'll come a time that you will see it the most important work for you to win souls for Jesus Christ and to show that the way of salvation by believing in Jesus and inviting him into your heart. Half a year later, Pete came into prison. And when he came into the cell, he heard that he had only one week to live. And a day before he was shot, he wrote us a long letter. And he wrote, all the men and the boys in this cell are sentenced to death. And I am so glad that I could tell them that when they receive Jesus as their Savior, 
that the Lord Jesus will make them children of God and that when they go to be killed that they go to the house of the Father with the many mansions where Jesus is preparing a mansion for everyone who believes in him and Peter wrote I am seeing now that the most important work for a Christian is to win souls for eternity once there came a man to me and said, will you save my, my wife? She is arrested. She has saved Jewish people and now she is in a police station. And there is one policeman who will run the risk to set her free if we pay him 600 guilders. But I have no money. I said, oh man, what does money say? Let's see, I have 200 guilders. Come back after an hour. And in that hour, I asked all my friends, say, have you money? Give it. It means to save the life of a good woman. When that man came back, I gave him 600 guilders. That man was a whistling, a betrayer. His wife was not at all in prison. But the Gestapo the police of the enemy had said, find out if Corrie Boom saves Jewish people. And he thought, I can do it and make some money. And he made some money. He went home with 600 guilders, but five minutes later the Gestapo surrounded our house and we were all arrested. Later, when I was in a concentration camp, there came a prisoner from my hometown. And she said, say, do you know who has betrayed you? I said, no. And then she told that it was that man. And there came hatred in my heart. The man I had given my last penny. But I know from the Bible that hatred means murder in God's eyes. But I also know from the Bible what to do with your murder. When we confess our sins, when we repent and ask forgiveness, then He is able to forgive us and the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all the sins that we tell Him and ask forgiveness for and repent. And I repented for my, my hatred and the Lord took that sin away. That's the great joy. The Bible tells very clearly what the Lord does when you repent. He takes such a sin and he casts it into the depths of the sea, forgiven and forgotten. That's what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say, but I believe he put a sign, no fishing allowed. True. And do you know, when I had b repented of that sin, the Lord, the Lord cleansed my heart with His blood. And a heart cleansed by the blood of Jesus, He fills with the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love even for enemies. And instead that I hated that man, I loved him. And after a war, that man was sentenced to death because he had caused the death of many Dutch people. And when I heard that, I wrote him, Your betrayal has meant 
the death of my old father was 84 years old when they brought him into prison. After 10 days he died. My sister, who died after 10 months terrible suffering. My brother, he came out alive with a sick man and died through that sickness and his son never came back. I myself have suffered terribly through in three different prisons. But I have forgiven you. And that is because Jesus is in my heart. And when Jesus tells you to love your enemies, he gives you the love that he demands from you. And I sent that man a New Testament and underlined the way of salvation. And that man wrote me that you could forgive me is such a great miracle that I have said, Jesus, when you give such a love in the heart of your followers, there's hope for me. And I have read in the Bible that you sent me that Jesus has died at the cross for the sins of the whole world. And I have brought my terrible sins to Jesus and I know that they are forgiven. Your forgiveness has shown me what it means that there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And that man was brought to death that same week. But he was reconciled with God and God had used me who had hated him to bring him to the Lord. The greatest of all is love. Say, can you forgive your enemies? I cannot, but Jesus in me can. And you will find out that forgiveness is a tremendous joy. For it is a key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It is a power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. No, you and I have to be the light of the world. Many of us have people that have wounded us and hurt us. I doubt that any of us have those kinds of wounds. And that's an absolutely tremendous story. But that's the power of love. When we choose to forgive people that have hurt us. And so today as we get ready to close, I'm going to give you an opportunity if maybe there's somebody that you need to forgive. I'm going to give you an opportunity just to come down and just to kneel and to spend some time with the Lord. Maybe it's a family member that's going through a hard time or somebody that you know in the community that you just want to pray for. Whatever it is on your heart, this is an opportunity for you to come. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to come down. Father, in the stillness of this moment, as we think about the command to forgive, I pray that you would give us the courage to do that. Father, whatever it is that's on our hearts today that we just need to bring to you, would you allow us the freedom just to come and to spend a few moments with you praying? We ask these things in your name. Amen.